Welcome, world travelers, to Global Connections. I'm your host, DJ Cassie Local. As your hosts, we are passionate in bringing you, no matter where you are, into the know of topics that relate to international social justice and equity to help bridge ourselves with the struggles of others. On this episode of Global Connections, we are going to hear from two of Colorado State University's community members about their lived experiences and knowledge around the intersectionalities of differing cultures, languages, and being LGBTQ+. Through their storytelling and research, we will hear the challenges, the insights, the expansions on self, and more. So before we get going, I'd like to introduce our two guests. Atlas Tan is a program coordinator for the Asian Pacific American Cultural Center, as well as an instructor in the President's Leadership Program. They have worked as a spiritual care coordinator at the Colorado State University Health Network, and they also coordinate with the Trevor Project to help LGBTQ plus youth. Yan Shui is a CSU graduate student in the Department of Anthropology. She is currently engaging in research on the lived experiences of transgender people in China and how the cultural and political environments influence their perspectives and resiliency. The study will be titled Trans Men and Women in China, Darkness and Resilience. Yan and Atlas, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you all here today. Hello, hello. Thank Good you. So I know that I am personally very excited for this topic because we have both of you to offer your insights and expertise, which is awesome, but also because so much of the conversation around LGBTQ plus identities and civil rights and narratives centralizes itself on domestic issues and domestic narratives, right? Mm -hmm. But there's so much happening abroad, both horrible and wonderful, um, related to this that we so often don't really tune into. So, like recently, Hong Kong was announced for the 2022 Gay Games, a sort of international LGBT-centric Olympic event. I didn't even know that we actually had something like that, so that was incredible to hear. There's this dynamic, constantly evolving picture of how these identities and social movements are enacted, but also the impact that can have within the U.S. for how we relate to others, even within our own LGBTQ plus movement. So, I guess that's enough of me talking. Uh, let's kind of get into it. Atlas, paint us a picture of the beginning of your story. Like, where did your tale begin to fuse, like, with interculturality and being LGBTQ+. Right. So, conceptually, being able to even think about these things came up right after I moved to the United States. Before that, it was all about survival. Mm -hmm. um, I had no language, like I said, to make sense of what I was going through as someone who's trans and non-binary. So no ways to explain myself to others, why I felt repressed. So I knew I wanted to move to the United States when I heard this promise of like freedom. And as someone with multiple marginalized identities coming in here, I'm learning that things are not so free. But there is definitely privilege in being here and ability to make sense and give words to what is going on for me. Mm -hmm. So... As a result, now I'm always in the pursuit of like, what, it, what does it feel like to live freely? And so it looks like my work is just beginning at this point. Yeah. When it came to, and we'll touch on this in a little bit, but when it came to actually even having a language to know who you were, like mm -hmm. in a U.S. Western context, like the term transgender, it's clear, it's defined, like for the most part, mm -hmm. we understand it's this umbrella term. But mm -hmm. when you're navigating a different cultural context, what is that like? It's really weird when you don't even have the word transgender to express yourself. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it comes up in very spiritual ways in, in trying to understand my belonging, my sense of belonging in this world. 
you kind of have to think about your spirituality. What cultural context did you have to navigate? Yes, I was born in Indonesia as a Chinese immigrant. So already my first language is not what is spoken with people around me. And then moving from Indonesia to China as an Indonesian Chinese immigrant and attending an American-based international school adds to that complexity of, okay, well, then where am I from? Uh, who am I? Um, and where do I really belong? Because it doesn't seem like I belong anywhere. Yeah. So, Jan, why did you want to research trans people in China? Academically speaking, if you do the research, like the literature review, you would find like a very big gap term in, in the global literature, like not so many touch on the topic of Asian transgender people, what cultural and political context uh, their lives are being affected and how and how they, you know, cope with all this stress. I feel like most what we understand about transgender people is based on North American and European context. As a researcher myself, I think it's important to have their living experiences of the Chinese transgender people to be uh, educated, like to be known by other people, and this closed status, and uh, to build this to connections between like the, the uh, Chinese domestic community and the broad community, yeah. That's, I, I mean, that's incredible that you have managed to pull together even just a small little community to build research off of mm -hmm. and um, learn a bit more. I, where, how, I, I guess, how did you manage to do that, especially when it's still kind of a community, learning where the gray areas for safety even are one thing i'm lucky with is that uh, in chinese culture these interpersonal networks are very valued and so you know the range of people i can get into contact with is limited but if they there is a person they you know they trust with and i was introduced you know by that person to another person and it's very helpful. And also, like, as you said, you know, they are very, you know, concerned about uh, security and about uh, protect their anonymous identity. So I guess it means I need to respect, like, how they want to represent themselves. Uh, so when they tell me their stories, Although there's something, you know, they are willing to tell me, but that doesn't mean they want them to write on the paper. It's important for me to respect what they want and what they don't want and to show that kind of non-judgmental attitude when talking to them. There was never one moment that while I'm doing my interview that I'm not surprised by their resiliency. So I think be understanding and to show that you can protect what they valued most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jan, I know a lot of your research focuses on how community, but also specifically family, impacts how transgender people in China navigate their identities. Was anything that Atlas mentioned about either the terminology, how it's used, even if there's a lack of having a term? In Chinese community, what I heard is that 
So first they use TS to represent transsexual, and then use CD to represent uh cross dressers, cross dressing, and then they introduce the word transgender at very late time. And uh, from one aspect, like when you use the short names to represent the word, it's kind of try to avoid who you are and uh, try to keep. A low profile, try to hide yourself. But now, I think the word transgender, which in Chinese is called 跨性别 is less stigmatizing and more kind of represent um social recognition and the potential for social movement too. So definitely having that kind of language is empowering. It's helpful for individuals to. Kind of evaluate their own experiences, also explain to other people of who they are and what they want to be. So it's important to have that kind of language.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think,、uh, especially in the U.S., there's a lot of emphasis on making sure language、mm-hmm. holds the capacity for understanding transgender. As you mentioned, it used to mean. Like just transsexual, and it was focused specifically on genitalia. But then it evolved into more of an umbrella term to include terms and forms of expression that weren't traditionally being accounted for. So, I suppose this is more for Atlas. Once you came to the U.S. and had at least some exposure to a Western language of understanding LGBTQ plus identity,、mm-hmm. like how did that help build that community for you?、Mm. The process of building community has been a super important process, and in the way I'm healing myself from all the things that has happened,、um, because these languages give access to certain identities that share certain experiences, which means that I don't have to carry all of this alone. And it can be a lot for one person who's not even an adult yet at the time to have to go through all of these things. So the more I have access to that, the more I can. Um, find those communities and relate to them from from those identities that we share.、Mm-hmm. Talking to you previously, you mentioned a lot that social media was、mm. really important.、Mm. Um, I know for、uh, even myself, like having an online social media community to、uh, like balance perceptions and l- continue to learn this evolving language is really important.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, how did that intersect? First, for you and your experiences in building that kind of community,、yeah. and I can't believe I'm old enough to say this, but back in my day, <laughs> we had MySpace. Oh no, <laughs> that was a huge resource. Not only are you learning to be,、uh, not only are you learning to code, you are also learning about emo culture, and most importantly, you're learning about queer culture、um, from the internet. And this you can access globally. I have friends in Germany. And friends in the United States, so I was able to build a community online, so that when I came to the U.S., I had places I can stay and people I can spend time with.、Mm-hmm. The language thing didn't come up until Tumblr came up. I think at that point it was mostly about finding a community who understands what it's like to be weird.、Um, it wasn't necessarily queer, although queer was an undertone. But yeah, Tumblr was the more. A changing force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yan, with what you've researched so far、uh, in China, where does social media interact with trans folks in establishing community, but also、uh, navigating predominant like cultural narratives of what it means to be trans in China? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think there is a transition, like as time passes. So I think in the nineteenth century, it's just mainstream media reported about uh transgender people, and because you know, uh, back then there were not uh so many who are willing to, you know, uh revealing themselves and. Uh, also, the media don't have much knowledge on, you know, gender transition. So, although there are, you know, some uh, positive reports about transgender people about their individual achievement, but comparatively, comparatively, there are more, you know, uh, reports that are misleading and stigmatizing. But then, uh, with this technology. Uh, innovations and uh, you know, um, so I think more and more Chinese transgender people have their own voices by creating their own social accounts, so they can write their own stories. They can report their you know community stories, and also um, they have a choice of to what reporters, to what news stations I want to re- release the stories that happens in the community. So let's see if uh, there's a reporter who, you know, after giving them the story, they don't, you know, take their responsibilities or being very biased, then, you know, this, uh, so we can, uh, you know, tell other uh, members in the community to you know be cautious when working with this person next time. So in this way, they both proactively speaking for themselves. Also, they have the tools to you know because the the community are more closely connected because of the internet, and so they have the tools to protect themselves. So they move from a more passive role to a more active role. Mm-hmm. when interacting with social media. So it, it sounds then like community happens less in pockets and more is more holistic because of the internet. Would yeah. that be fair? Yeah, yeah. And also with all these, you know, new communication technologies and everyone can be a news reporter these days. So mm-hmm. So it, in that case, is it that individual identities are being focused upon as like a case study of what being trans means in that cultural context yeah definitely so people talk about their own you know uh special experiences but also people try to find the connections among each other so i think that's important to build a collective identity based on individual identity So we're going to segue a little bit more into what we call our deep dive section. I know, Atlas, you mentioned a lot when we had talked previously that navigating trauma is a particular experience for queer and trans people of color. How did you balance that with the things that you were experiencing? Healing cannot happen for me without community. So healing has to happen with people. and. How do I find my people when when I'm a displaced person who's disconnected from my culture 
in order to become queer, I had to give up a lot of my identities. I am still working on that because I had to give up a lot of my ethnic identities. And, and that I see as my connections to the earth because knowing my ethnic background helps me understand what food I need to eat, what kind of climate I need to be in, what kind of community I need to be in. So that's really hard because when I travel back to Indonesia and China and Singapore, these places where I would visit my family, I feel invisible. So as someone who is third cultural and adding queerness on top of that, I'm learning how to be in that space of not quite balance or finding balance. So it's a liminal space. Um, being non-binary really helps with that. So learning to be okay with that space of not knowing, not okay, not you know perfect, none of that um, is really wonderful even though it's painful because when you're an outsider, you get to see things in a way that's more critical uh, about what's going on and you get to choose how you want to participate. There's like a, a theme, a thread of contradiction mm-hmm. being just a contradiction of having a language in a Western context, but not having one um, in a in an upbringing that was your own cultural context, like a contradiction in, um, like Yan, you mentioned that trans folks in China, like they're simultaneously getting public, a sort of public image, but then it's not always in the best light, or at least in the most positive light. Like this can go out to both of you. I, I mean, how how do trans folks, but how do you navigate contradictions? And what would be some things that you would impart on people as being a part of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing all these things that yeah. I went through at some point, yeah. uh, especially about transitioning. My mm-hmm. parents don't know I had top surgery this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't know all these things about my identities because there is no language to even communicate. And s- as someone who has been living in the United States, there's also the fading of my own language mm-hmm. to even have proper communication with my parents. So for me, it's less about coming out or reconciling relationship with my family, Mm -hmm. that feels impossible. That feels like I need to get a degree in Chinese language and queerness Mm -hmm. at the same time to be able to verbalize what's going on. So for me, when you you say the word contradictions, I think about the word queer, not fitting in, not normal, and learning to be okay with that. And I think about The Art of Failure by Jack Halberstam, about how to embody this idea of failure and still Mm -hmm. live and thrive so as someone who has managed to do that the focus becomes um, less about family but more about building communities of chosen family mm-hmm. because trying to repair that feels a lot like a lot of work mm-hmm. so i found that they for chinese transgender people so they want to you know, assimilate into the society. They want to be accepted by their family. So they want to be recognized. So that means they have to, you know, conform to a certain already established uh, cultural norms regarding gender expressions and gender roles. But at the same time, their existence, uh, them, you know, it's just for them to you know, uh, holding activities and to tell their uh, life stories to the public itself is very transformative. It's very, very challenging of these established uh, expectations and uh, is 
I think the tension is, you know, um, so at the so they are very, uh, a very rebellious force, and but also, um, they want to keep the harmony, you know, of themselves and of this, you know, society. So I think that that's the tension. That's definitely a very familiar feeling. I, I think that at least in my experience, a lot. Of queer and trans folks have to take the idea of family and reframe it because the traditional culturally defined version of family just stops fitting. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's just it. That's interesting to hear that, like, especially even in just trying to reframe family, like there are tensions, there are contradictions, mm-hmm. but there's also a sense of liberation there. Where does that liberation come from for you or the people that you know? I also have to say that. You can't do all of this without the privilege mm-hmm. of getting access to the language, to the resources, to the community, even. Mm-hmm. So, with that, the liberation comes with a cost, and the liber- liberation comes with access to knowledge and resources and community. Um, so, what does that mean as someone who has access to that? For me, it's understanding how to be in this body without feeling all the shame and all the things that I'm supposed to be feeling. And using this body, knowing that it is a vessel, especially when you're trans, kind of feel like a cyborg most of the time because you're medically constructed sometimes. So how do you use this body to feel good about your life and help others feel good about their lives? Because what I'm going through is not individual mm-hmm. and it's very much shared. I think for my participants, like before I... And I come to that. I just want to introduce a uh, idea of body image, and so it it consists of not only how we perceive ourselves, but also how our images, our um, you know, our personhood, or our appearances, are perceived, are recognized by other people. So for transgender people, for them to reach. Like for my participant, for them to reach a、uh, liberation, that means like they have, they have these, you know, uh, appearances or a certain, you know, embodiment of masculinities or femininities that are not only you know recognized by themselves, but also, uh, for others to interact with them in such a way, and when they reach a certain balance. That's a liberation, but you know when you know even though sometimes they are restricted by how, uh, you know the societies choose to, uh, talk to them, choose to treat treat them. So when they feel their gender identities are being challenged or being, uh, you know being denied, like suddenly that liberation is, uh, com. Constrained and deprived from them, and they feel they have to, you know, overcompen overcompensate in a in a certain way, you know, to make themselves, you know, to regain the control. So I think liberation is very subtle. It's very pressure pressure thing, you know, for um、uh, the Chinese transgender participant, uh, I have talked to. Kind of going back to the idea of privilege and oppression,、mm-hmm. which is a huge, important component of liberation, as、mm-hmm. as Atlas mentioned, 
like at least in the u.s western context like a lot of lgbtq plus identities have traditionally been framed through white dominant narratives mm -hmm. and the biggest challenge then has been how do we unpack the invisible knapsack as uh, it's called uh -huh. to find that that mysterious liberation like uh -huh. balancing these privileges and these oppressions where do you see the role of contradictions coming into play especially with privilege and oppression when you mention the invisible knapsack mm -hmm. and referring to whiteness it's really interesting because when we say queerness is, is very white dominant where are we looking mm -hmm. um where are we getting those um resources because yeah i i i do see a lot of like poc work on queerness mm -hmm. but where do they exist right and who is paying attention um and i think about how coming from another continent another country and coming in here and learning that it's not just whiteness because colonialism comes in different race and different forms so it's more on like colonialism too mm -hmm. so what does it mean to decolonize um, this uh, dominant narrative of queerness for me it means stepping into this identity as a person of color which you don't have back in China where I live but you come here suddenly you're a person of color which means I have to be very mindful in how I discern and choose information am I just taking what is given to me which is often yes in the predominantly white institution it's very white or am I actively choosing to listen to black trans women or people who are often not heard um, so that means that i have to be very mindful of how this identity as a person of color is playing into a role in my place here in the united states mm -hmm. so i guess going back to unpacking colonialism mm -hmm. and community building or just finding family um where when you're trying to unpack that where do you find points of commonality um, in establishing that sense of family and then where you find barriers in those experiences. I think when you have marginalized identities, you do find commonalities in the way those identities intersect with others, for sure. But I also feel like when I think about decolonizing, I think about my role as a Chinese person in colonialism. And as someone who practices Tibetan Buddhism, that's very problematic because Chinese are the colonizers of Tibet. So what does it mean to have all these intersecting identities, not only in the United States, but internationally? And trying to find community around that has been an interesting process. Um, but thankfully, I'm not the only one. And with Instagram, there's a lot of ways we can find each other. So for me, building community has to span beyond distance and in many ways beyond time. Um, so in many ways, we are developing communities that don't quite exist, but exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some final concluding thoughts. My takeaways for this is that liberation is not simple. Mm -hmm. Privilege is not simple. Mm -hmm. Oppression isn't simple. How we are mindful of this, especially when dealing with interculturality, mm -hmm. is really important. But for our audience, what do the both of you, Jan and Atlas, feel are key takeaways that our listeners, whether they're LGBTQ plus or not, can carry with them as they move forward with the stories that you brought to them today? So I guess there's the impression that why, you know, Chinese transgender people are a lot of are under like so much pressures and oppressions, and why there's no 
street protest and why uh, this does not happen, why they, you know,、uh, why they do that, not that. Because the big environment is very different from here, from America and from Europe. So what kind of actions they can take is very affected by the social context. What about you, Atlas? Yeah. So for me, I think about. The process of making the world a freer place for others and for myself is never ending, and to do that, there needs to be more language, more communication, and some of this language haven't even been developed yet because there are people who we are not hearing from. So I think about the people I left behind in order to live here to be more free, and how important it is to keep cultivating new awarenesses and. Develop new understandings of different identities and the experience connected to that, and then how power intersects through that. But most importantly, the work of undoing my own internalized oppression, because that is what I have the most control of.、Um, so, with that, I said, if you listeners are one of those masochists <laughs> doing the work, there's a community out there waiting for you, and there are people doing the work.、Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, thank you so much to both of our guests, Atlas Tan and Yan Shui. We appreciate you all, our curious audience, for also tuning into Global Connections. Remember, you can always follow our show on kcsufm.com under podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on the Office of International Programs Instagram and Facebook pages, as well as KCSU's pages to see up-to-date episodes and new content.